Father, at some level or another, there's a lot of people in this room that are suffering. And within a half mile and a mile and five miles and ten miles of this church, they're really suffering. At Regional Hospital and Mary Black and down in Greenville Hospital and all the way to Charlotte and Atlanta, there are people that are suffering. Lord, we go across the ocean where there's very little medical help in the third world, and they're really suffering. And there's been extraordinary loss this week, Lord, by, by all sorts of means, all controlled by you, but so difficult, Lord, of what life is going to be like now in this new normal of loss. So, God, we pray. We're asking for help, the help of the Holy Spirit, that today we would believe the Word of God instead of our emotions. We would believe truth rather than our doubts. We would be willing to be taught and willing to be changed, changed, so that we wouldn't be chained. I beg you, in the name of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God and through the testimony of a redeemed saint, set the sufferer free today from hopelessness. And may they leave today singing with Habakkuk. May they leave today singing with all of the saints of heaven and singing with the God who sings over them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you teach the Bible long enough, God does some pretty extraordinary things in your time of preparation, right when you need help in explaining or illustrating a biblical text. God sends an event, or He sends a person, uh, or He sends a writer to your way, and all of a sudden, everything is abundantly clear in a way that you would have never been able to say it. And I just refer to it as the wonderful, wild weaving of God, how He blends all of life together uh, for the purpose of helping us know Him and love Him. And for me, the wild weaving of God that caused the service to look like it does today, which is a completely different kind of service, started six months ago when a friend of mine sent me a video link and said, you need to watch this story of endurance and suffering, great adversity, yet great hope. Well, that was back in January. Life happened. So I never watched it. And so I'm making our way through the Minor Prophets over the past year. We've been in the Minor Prophets for a year now, uh, almost a year. And so we're now in the book of Habakkuk. And, and so we're, we're in, we're at, this is number 10 of, of 12. The, the, the Bible ends with 10 prophets. They're all short. And Habakkuk is one of them. And he's unusual in the sense that most of the prophets were uh, tasked with receiving a word from God and then giving it to the people, but not so with Habakkuk. He never talks to the people. His whole time is spent talking to God. His soul is in anguish because of pain, and he doesn't understand why God is allowing it. He doesn't understand how God is going to use it. And then God tells him, and excuse the paraphrase, but this is Habakkuk 2.4. This is what God says to him. If you want to be right with God... You must believe what he says is true, 
rather than what you feel is true. And that's the whole tone of the book. And so that's what Habakkuk does in the book. He begins to believe what God says rather than what he's feeling. And one of the most impressive statements in the book is Habakkuk 3.16. He says, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity. I will be joyful in God my Savior, the sovereign Lord, not circumstances, the sovereign Lord is my strength. The reason why this verse is so important and the reason why my friend sent me the video uh, that, that uh, is, is really centering today's service is because Habakkuk is believing God when there's not a happily ever after ending to the story on earth. Calamity is coming, a foreign army is going to invade his country, and God's not going to stop it. That's what makes the book so good. It's not like the person who gives a testimony, well, my business was failing and I prayed to God and now I'm a quasillionaire. Or the beauty contestant who says it's not about looks when it is about looks. No, we need testimonies of people where it didn't work out for them to say there's hope in God when the earthly scenario, the new normal, is not easy at all. So when I was reading this verse a minute ago, you probably noticed I left out verse 17, which I, I did reference last week, but I didn't want to read it today because I can't read it like Catherine Wolf reads it. That's who's going to speak to you today. Catherine Wolf is going to read, and you can imagine how astonished I was after six months of ignoring my friend's email, finally decided to listen to this story last week of adversity or endurance through adversity, and in the middle of her talk, she quotes Habakkuk 3, 17. My jaw dropped. Right when I needed help illustrating Habakkuk 3, 17, she quotes Habakkuk 3, 17, and, and um, I said, I want you to hear from her. And so uh, our sweet sister that's going to speak to us today is named Catherine Wolf, um, and uh, from 2000 to 2004... She attended um, Samford College in Birmingham, Alabama with her soon-to-be husband, uh, Jay. On November 6, 2004, uh, they were married in Athens, Georgia, along with 600 of their friends. And they never really knew, could not possibly grasp at the day of their wedding, November uh, 6, 2004, what it meant to say the vows for better, for worse, in sickness, and in health. By the time she was uh, 26, they had moved to California. She was breaking into the modeling industry, and her husband, Jay, was a law uh, law student at Pepperdine University. On April 21st of 2008, uh, she woke up in their California home feeling a little funky, thinking it felt a little bit like she was pregnant again. But suddenly her arms and her hands and her legs went numb, and she dropped to the kitchen floor. She had suffered a massive brain stem stroke. And the house that day was her six-month-old baby boy, James, and by God's grace, her husband, Jay, decided to come home from law school early, found his wife on the floor. He called 
uh, an ambulance and she was taken to a hospital and spent 16 hours in surgery where they removed um, half of her cerebellum and many intracranial nerves, vital nerves in her brain. She would spend 40 days in intensive care, four months overall at UCLA Medical Center, and then she was moved to a rehab center of, in Casa Colina where she learned basics like eating, speaking, walking. And 11 months um, later, she was able to swallow her first piece of food. She managed to take a few steps a year and a half and can stand up now, can walk a little bit with a cane, but primarily navigates in a wheelchair. Since her stroke, she has had nine surgeries. Uh, she continues to experience double vision, uh, partial paralysis of the face, partial deafness in the right ear, lack of right-hand coordination, and a severe broken bone just uh, probably within the past year or so from a, a terrible a terrible fall. In January of this year, she spoke at Liberty University. Somebody was kind enough to send me her talk given in chapel uh, to the students at the campus there. And now I want you to hear from Catherine Wolf. The census joke, I've had 11 surgeries and they've all been horrible and intense and invasive and it's been terrible. And I've severely broke my right leg and actually have a rod installed in it. And I have scars literally up and down my body from various surgeries and procedures. And I've just, I've been through the ringer in the last 10 years. And do you know what I've had to do? I've had to be bossy with my soul. I have had to tell my soul how we are going to feel about our lives. And that is so important. Please listen carefully. Psalm 42.5, which you may know if you don't, memorize it, put it on your fridge. It changes everything. Psalm 42.5, what I see happening is the psalmist is getting his soul back on board and says, here soul, listen up, here is what we are doing. The psalm says, why are you so downcast, O oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Get the soul on board. For I shall again praise him, my rock and my salvation. So what we see is he talks to it and says, why are you downcast? And then he says, hope in God. Here's what we're doing. He's my rock and my salvation. And I can attest in my story, I've had to do that a good bit. I've had to get bossy. I've had to say, this is what we are doing. So I know you may not feel it, but God's truth is here. And I am going to, and it's deep in my heart, and you are going to do it, soul. And we're going. And I think as Jay and I have really just peeled back the layers on our story. That has been everything. That's the goal. That's changed everything. To be able to say, this does not feel good. This is not my happy place. This is not me living my best life. This is not me living my truth. But to go, that's all constantly changing. None of that is permanent. What is permanent? Oh yeah, 
I, I know that too. What is permanent is my faith in Jesus Christ. And that is what I'm choosing to believe so. And you're coming. And I think, honestly, that is so, so, so important for all of you who are, I think, likely about to be where, younger than me, but, you know, a little older than college age in a few years. As you enter the workforce, as you transform our culture, please be about changing the narrative that if you are not feeling it, it cannot be good, because that's not true. That's not true. I love my life in a wheelchair. I will never walk again. My face is paralyzed. These things probably are not changing. I don't put God in a box, but likely they're not. And I'm living my best life, and it's incredible, and I love it. You don't have to clap, okay? But it's true. You're awesome in your wheelchair. You don't need something to change. Your wheelchair is a seat of honor. I mean that in the upside-down kingdom world. Everything's different. And you know this in your head, don't you? We all know, we've all heard it before, like, oh, our feelings aren't really what supersedes everything. But that's not how we live. How we live is feelings are the ultimate important thing, and I've got to chase down the happy. I've got to get to my happy place. I had the thought recently, um, the wheelchair is my avenue to go to my happy place. And as I thought about that, I realized, no, that's not right. The, the thought there is right, because I know that this is part of the happy place. But it is the happy place. The wheelchair is actually that elusive happy place I got to get to for my me time. This is it. Because when I view everything that is in my life as exactly where God has me, it changes how I feel about my circumstances. And that's very powerful to re-narrate to your mind, this is awesome. This is my best life. Anyway, I could go on and on and on, but I think it's so important. Some of you may know who Sarah Groves is. She is just my favorite artist in all the world. Woo! And she, um, she wrote this incredible song that I heard several years ago when I heard her singing it. And she's going to be at Hope Hills Camp this summer again, so when you volunteer there, she'll be there. And she, um, she wrote this incredible song called Open My Hands. And the beginning of the song um, says, I believe in a blessing I don't understand. I've seen rain fall on the wicked and the just. Rain is no measure of his faithfulness. He withholds no good thing from us. And she wrote the lyrics based on Psalm 84:11, which is the psalm that talks about no good thing has he withheld from those who walk uprightly with him. And she wondered, as have many a theologian past, how can that be true? How can it possibly be true that God withholds no good thing? I mean, come on. How can he withhold no good thing from, from any of us? Don't we know many a person, aren't we living, that he or us or whatever don't have money, 
power, the position they deserve, the life they deserve. How can it be? And she came across this, I'm just gonna throw it down. There it is, forget it. She came across this brilliant theologian, um, Sir Richard Baker, who in the 1600s beautifully wrote in response to the question, how can God withhold no good thing? He writes, and I would firmly agree, that the good things in life, the best things in life, are not things at all. He writes, and I think we have a slide to show this, that the best things in life are the peace of conscience, the joy of the Holy Spirit, the fruition of his presence in this life, and the assurance of his face in the next. Yes, go ahead, take a picture. But be sure you can print it out and put it on your dorm fridge or whatever, because we need tangible Ebenezer's people. Let me say it again to be sure you got it. Peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, the fruition of his presence in this life, and the assurance of his face in the next. Of these things chiefly, God will never withhold from those who walk faithfully with him. And I find that pretty life-changing, honestly, that the very best things can never be taken, never. Because you've seen my faithfulness so many times before, you know you can't be hurt by the world. And I feel like that is so us all because of what we've been through. We will not live afraid. We can live untouchably. We can live as those who are untouched by the world because of where we've been, because we've seen time and time again God show up in our stories. I, um, I think my, my past, the stroke, all the surgeries, all the falls, everything, um, has been this like strange, like gaze on Jesus thing that I don't fully understand, honestly, but I trust. Um, in May of 2009, so this is like a year and a month after I had the stroke and I still couldn't walk. I had just started eating again. Um, I could speak some, but I was still like really, really bad off. And I took Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18, which some of you might be familiar with, and I rewrote it to fit my situation. And if you know Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18, those passages say that the fig tree does not bud, though there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stall, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. Now, for some reason, I took that beautiful passage and rewrote it to fit my situation in May of 2009, which 
I don't know why I did this exactly, and this was really before social media was like a huge thing, so it was like kind of old to like put it out there on my caring bridge or maybe info medical update site at that point. But I decided to rewrite it to fit my situation and publish it for the world to see. And um, I think as I read it now, almost 10 years later, that that was me being bossy to my soul. It was me um, declaring what I know to be true, deeper than what I was feeling. And um, I think it, it's up there. It says, though I cannot walk, and I am confined to a wheelchair, though my face is paralyzed, and I cannot smile, though I am extremely impaired and cannot take care of my own baby boy, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. And I don't really know where that came from, honestly. I'd love to tell you that that's right where my head and my heart were in that moment. And, oh yeah, I was feeling it. I will rejoice in God, my Savior. But I wasn't. I was going, Lord, I don't know if I can do this life. I still don't know, even now, if this is all going to be okay. I still can't even walk. I am permanently in a wheelchair. My face is paralyzed, and then I wasn't used to it, so it really mattered. I was deaf, the lamb. I was just reeling, and yet I could rejoice in the Lord. And I think it was me, excuse me, just choosing to, to narrate to my own head and thus my heart, and thus my soul, what we are all going to do, which is get on more to trusting and rejoicing in God my Savior. I, um, I think I heard recently from a missionary that America and the Western world in general, but mainly America, is the only place in the world where the first response when there's a diagnosis that we don't want is we pray for deliverance, we pray for healing, we pray to get cancer out the door, we pray away this, we pray away that. While that prayer is for sure wonderful, nothing wrong with praying for healing, deliverance, any of that, not at all. But in other parts of the world, they pray this prayer. May the Lord find me faithful as I suffer. May I point and cling to Christ through my diagnosis. May I point others to Jesus by how I respond to this situation. And he um, very powerfully said, what are, what, what, what are we doing wrong here? What are we teaching our children so that they grow up to have to pray it away? What are we doing? So Jenny and I have talked a lot about what are, what are we doing with our own children? How are we changing that narrative of American culture today to say, do not first pray for deliverance, but pray for faithfulness, 
Pray for a longing for Christ in and showing the world who he is in my story. So what Jay and I have started doing with our little boys is teaching them that good and hard coexist. That the good things and the hard things are not mutually exclusive things. They actually can be together. We're trying to tell our sons that James and John Wolf, you can do the hard thing. God is equipping you and supplying you constantly to do the hard thing in the good story that he is writing in your life. I'll say that again. James and John, fill in whatever name you want. Fill in your name, I need it. Catherine, Catherine, Catherine. God has equipped you. God made you. God is supplying you with everything you need to do the hard thing in the good story he's writing in your life. And do you want to know why? Because that's God's character. He's good, and we trust him. And he is writing a good story. And the American narrative that we're all getting so wrong is if it doesn't feel good and seem good, it can't be good. It has to be bad. I should be disqualified from anything good ever happening to me because I'm in the wheelchair, right? Like, it all has to be awful, right, ladies? Because we're in wheelchairs. But that is not true at all. Don't believe that. We can have a great life in the wheelchair, as great a life as anybody else in this room, because it's all in here translated to here. We can do the hard things because God has made us to do the hard things in the good story that he's writing. And I'm sorry I keep crying, but y'all are so beautiful. Okay. So, do you all know what constraints are? Like limitations, constraints. You've heard that word, constraints, right? So, my thought is we all have constraints of one kind or another in our lives. Some may be emotional that no one sees on the inside. That invisible wheelchair we talked about this morning, yeah, you probably got one because we all do. Some of us have wheelchairs on the outside of our body. Some of us are dealing with the death of siblings, parents, children, you name it. Some of us are dealing with no money in the bank. Some of us are dealing with fill in the blank, every sort of horror you can imagine. And um, those are pretty significant constraints, the limitations of our lives. And yet, what is so cool about constraints is that the constraints of our lives are these strange boundary lines. And the constraints, for instance, I was in hand constraint therapy where they wanted to make my right hand and right arm work again, right? Because it doesn't work, I don't have fine motor. So they would take my left hand, the occupational therapist would take my left hand, I should stand up. They would take my left hand and they would tie it behind my back, forcing me to use this hand, okay? 
So I'd have to like move marbles, it was so boring, and, and use it to do stuff, okay? But do you know what it did? It gave me this arm, like it didn't work until a whole lot of therapy constraining the other arm. I'll sit down so I don't scare Dave off too much. So what's fascinating is because of a constraint, something else, something new can flourish. Okay, so keep that picture in your head. So here's what's interesting. There's a lot of research right now, please look it up, about the ability to flourish within constraints, about post-traumatic growth, and this notion that because of what we've been through, we can flourish, not in spite of it, but actually because of it. So here's what's really cool. Let's look at Jesus. Emmanuel, you may have heard, Jesus came. Put himself in the human constraint of flesh. He constrained himself to the human body. What does that mean? I think that means that our constraints are dignified because Jesus himself constrained his, his godness, his otherness, his something we can't ever completely understand to a human body. I wish I could remember the Dorothy Sayers quote somebody said at dinner that he had the courage to take his own medicine, that he came, constrained himself to human flesh, dignifying our constraints. But then he didn't stop there because Jesus died and rose again he overcame the ultimate constraint of death. In so doing, we can flourish within our constraints. Boom! Want me to say it again? That's insane! Woo! I'm freaking out. That's gold. We can flourish in our constraints, whatever they may be, because Jesus has overcome the ultimate constraint, the constraint of death. That's deeply encouraging to the psyche, people. I would make note of that. I would live differently based on that knowledge. Since Jesus overcame, we will never be overcome by our constraints. Mm, that gives me chills. I know, right? Hallelujah. Here's the truth, though. Constraints leave scars. Um, sometimes pretty big ones, pretty bad ones. You may have noticed a few on my body. I, um, I got some scars. Some you see, some you don't. We've all got scars, internal, external. We've been through stuff. And yet, I kind of think scars are the best part. Scars are the proof. Scars say we lived. Resurrected Jesus had scars in his hands. Why would the resurrected Jesus have scars in his hands? They're the proof. They say, I, I'm still here. And I, um, I love the thought that our scars are the boundary lines 
Jay wrote um, in our book at the end, I'm gonna botch the quote, one day we will see. One day we will trace the lines of our scars and see them to have fallen in the most pleasant of places. One day, we won't need hope anymore. One day, we will be face to face with Jesus and have no need for anything but what we have. I love that quote, Jay. <laughs> I am, um, now that I'm really crying, I want to share this final thought, and then I'm done, I promise. I, um, I think this word picture is pretty powerful. I can't see myself, but when I'm looking in the mirror, and I'm not looking in the mirror a whole lot these days, and yet, when I am, and there's nothing wrong, I mean, look in the mirror, all you people out there who, yeah, free yourself, look in the mirror if you want to, or don't, whatever, it doesn't matter. <laughs> weird! I just don't want you to think I have like some weird issue, vanity or not. Neither! Get over it. <laughs> so, hey, come with me, one last thought. So because of this awesome little boundary line, this safe little place I'm in, I can go forward or backward pretty easily. It's not too hard for me to do this. But if I want to go to the right or to the left, it is like really difficult to get over there, over there. Am I right, ladies? It's not easy to get around in the wheelchair. But when I'm staying in my lane, it's not hard. I think that's pretty powerful. And when we are staying, for God's called us to be, it's not that hard. When I'm trying to get her story or her life, it's really, really difficult. I'm really trying to live Galatians 6, 4 and 5. And I, um, I want to close by reading it to you, and I want to ask you, this is in the message version, which I love, I want to ask you to consider taking it to heart and living this way, because I think it might just change the world if we all did. Make a careful exploration of who you are and the work that you've been given and sink yourself into that. Don't be impressed with yourself. Don't compare yourself with others. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best that you can with your own life. If we sink deep, what does that enable us to do? I think back to that original Bonhoeffer poem I was reading, we can finally look up. When we sink deep, we're looking up. When we look up, we can finally look out at a world desperate for the comfort that we have received. Second Corinthians 1, we have been comforted so we can comfort others. When we sink deep, 
we can finally do it. We can finally see up and out, and it changes everything. Thank y'all so much for letting me speak to you. Hey, I'm gonna meet you after, okay? I got to meet you in person. Oh, that's great. I know when not to speak <clears throat> after such a servant, so I just want to let you hear one more time five principles that God so graciously taught us today through Catherine Wolf. Number one, our hope will waver if we allow unreliable emotions to tell us what to believe about God. Our hope will flourish if we allow the truth of Scripture to be bossy over our soul. Principle number two. The best things in life are not things at all. The best things are peace of conscience, joy from the Holy Spirit, the presence of God in this life, and the assurance of His face in the next. Principle number three. In times of adversity, our first prayer should not be deliverance from suffering. Instead, we should pray, may the Lord find me faithful as I suffer. May I cling to Jesus and point others to him by the way I respond to this situation. Principle number four. Good things and hard things are not mutually exclusive. Good and hard coexist. God is constantly equipping you to do hard things in the good story that he is writing in your life. Number five, Jesus dignified our constraints by constraining himself to human flesh. When Jesus died and rose again, he overcame the ultimate constraint of death and we can flourish within our constraints because Jesus has overcome the ultimate constraint. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for our dear sister, Catherine. We love her and do not know her beyond this computer image that you have so graciously preserved for us. Because we have heard you today, God. We finally understand what the book of Habakkuk is about. We understand what faith is about. Oh, Father, how our joy in Jesus has increased. Our praise for his constraints and the way he's dignified our suffering through his suffering of constraint. Oh, Father, we do pray the prayer now. Make us faithful in our suffering. It is your sovereign decision whether we will be delivered. But our will, Lord, is responsible for crying out to be faithful. I pray for those who suffer today in this church from a multiplicity of reasons. The loss of a child, 
loss of a parent, loss of a job, rejection of friends, uncomfortable self-image. Your sovereign choice, Lord, to design the body and the mind in a unique way that doesn't make us extremely comfortable. Lord, these are our constraints. So preciously chosen by the same God who chose constraints for his son. Oh God, make us faithful. And more than anything else, as we sink deeper and deeper and deeper in these bodies that fail us and these minds that become less efficient and productive. Lord, in a world that's becoming increasingly filled with terror and increasingly hostile to good and to God, keep us faithful. As we sink, hallelujah, that we look up and see Jesus more clearly. And we see out at a suffering world, at India and China and Africa, the underserved in the inner city, those who have no water, those who have no home, those who have no health. May we look up and see Jesus from our suffering, and may we look out and see suffering with our Savior of hope to declare. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.